So uh, we've been in this series called, well, it's basically called the me series. It's kind of awkward to say out loud, but it's better, it's better to look at it because it's like a long underscore and then me. So I'm just going to say the me series. Today, uh, well, the whole series has been on relationships and today we're going to, the, the message is called fight me. So we're going to talk about conflict, but the fight me is not, don't take it as like fight me, but like fight me. Let's, let's talk about what that looks like. You know what I mean? So more gentle, a more gentle fight me than the way that we would usually say that. Just read it that way, okay? But we're going to talk about conflict, and more specifically, we're going to talk about what God's Word says about conflict, what the Bible says about conflict, and what it says about how we can handle it in a healthy way. Are we good with that? So I, I, I run into this situation a lot um, where I'm talking with someone, and they're going, Seth, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, but whenever I read the Bible, it doesn't come alive to me. Like, I don't, I don't get stuff out of it. And, and so I just don't understand. So it makes me not want to do it. And I just want to, I want to push back on that notion a little bit today because I've felt that way before. Absolutely. And I think a lot of us have. It's not like every time that, that I open the Bible that like butterflies come out and it's like, oh my goodness, you know, I have this new. But there, there's something about God's faithfulness that, you know, I, I, love, I love the way that this has been expressed before. You don't remember what you had for breakfast 10 years ago, but it sustained you. You know what I mean? You don't know what you had, but it sustained you. And so I want to show today, hopefully, talk about just how practical the scriptures can be, just how practical they can be. Sometimes I think we don't read the Bible because we think it's too spiritual or lofty or I'm not going to understand it, but there are tips and wisdom hidden in plain sight for us if we will just take it upon ourselves to read. And so we're going to look at, today we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 15, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. So we're going to hear from Solomon, we're going to hear from Jesus, and we're going to hear from Paul. And I think that's a great combination, don't you? Okay, me too. Okay, so we'll start with Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs is categorized as one of the Old Testament books of wisdom. There are different genres of books from the Old Testament. There are books of history. There are books of prophecy, right? This is a book of wisdom. Now, it's largely attributed to Solomon. And Solomon, he was King Solomon. He was the king that came after David. He was one of David's sons. He was known as the wisest guy ever, which is, I think, a really great reputation. I think we can, it's probably safe to exclude Jesus from that, but Jesus was a little bit of a special case. So he was the wisest regular guy, yeah? And so there's this, this book of wisdom, it's full of wisdom, um, and historians actually believe that there were other authors that contributed it to as well, but that Solomon was the, was the main author. And so in, in Proverbs chapter 15, for the first few verses, it seems like he's focusing on interpersonal communication, which is just how humans interact with each other. And so we're going to take a look at those first few verses, starting in verse 1, okay? A soft, this is Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Hey, do you ever read a word and you're like, did I say that right? Oh, and you have to like go over it a few times. Yeah, I did. Perverseness. And it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Okay, now we're going to look at Matthew 18, but first, a little Context, okay. So Matthew uh, is one of the gospel accounts written by Matthew. Okay, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them have a little bit, they're a little bit different thematically. So they're all the story of Jesus and how he came. He was born. He 
He did amazing miracles and taught about the kingdom of God and the kingdom coming, and then he died for our sins. How many, do we know the basics of the gospel? And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So there are these basic truths that you can find in each one of the four gospels, but then there's also some different themes that you can see. And Matthew, it appears, has been written primarily, his, his audience would seem to be primarily Jewish people. And the way we can tell that is there's a lot of focus on basically convincing that, hey, this Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and he himself is the Messiah. Okay, so that's the kind of, it's good to know what the author has in mind as best we can when they're writing it so that we can, we can see, I wonder why he focuses so much on this. You're gonna see a lot in Matthew quotes from the Old Testament that show and prove that Jesus is a fulfillment of those prophecies. So in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tackles a few different topics, but in Western church culture, uh, Matthew 18 is famous for being the, the passage that talks about offenses or more specifically, when your brother sins against you, okay? Like we'll use the term like, oh man, I'm gonna have to Matthew 18 that, yeah. Right? Well, maybe, maybe that's just like, like very few people say that. That's it's kind of like really churchy, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, we're going to read it starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about, about what, um, what Jesus was, was talking about there. But first we're going to look at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. This is uh, the letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was this really cool city that was like this trade hub. And so not only was it a great place for trades of good, uh, trade of goods and services, so from different regions and different places, this was a trade hub. It was also a great place for the exchange of information, which works really well for the early church because what were they spreading? The good news of Jesus. And so there was this, Ephesus was this hub in which they would preach the gospel and then it would go out to different regions, which is really, really cool. Now, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, is a little bit different than a lot of the other letters that, that Paul wrote because a lot of um, those letters, at least for part of the letter, they have a very um, a corrective tone. Basically, he's like, okay, guys, you guys are really botching it up, and here's what you need to do. And then he also gives encouragement and stuff like that. Paul's an encouraging guy, but he's not afraid to tell people when they messed up. But with the Ephesians, it's a little bit different. He doesn't really come with a corrective tone. So I think maybe we can assume when we see that that maybe the Ephesians were like, doing all right, and they're a little bit more mature. Because what, what Paul focuses on with the Ephesians, it seems like the major theme is you can see this progression in Ephesians where he talks about how we are first primarily reconciled to God, and then in turn, because of that, we're able to be reconciled to each other. And then after we, as we are reconciled with God and reconciled with each other, then and only then are we able to fulfill the eternal purposes that God has set apart for the church. Okay, so that's kind of the, what we see in Ephesians, and specifically in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about the importance of the church working together in order for us to attain maturity and unity. Maturity and unity, that's what we see in chapter 4. So we're going to jump in at verse 25, Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You guys pray with me? (sighs) Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you that we can lean into your word and that we can trust what you've said. God, we pray that as we approach your word today that you would soften our hearts and open our ears, that we would be ready to receive. God, in those areas that we have tried to claim authority for ourselves, that we've tried to control, God, we pray that you would soften our hearts so that we might see that we must come and surrender to you. God, show us, show us through your word today how we can deal with conflict in a healthy way. Show us how we can be the set-apart people that you have called us to be. Let your word stand. Let your word be what takes root in our hearts today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you are like me in this and that you would describe yourself as conflict adverse, which means that you like to avoid conflict? Yeah, okay, probably most of us. Most of us are not like just heading for conflict. Well, conflict adverse, is, it, 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 sounds, it sounds good, I think, it sounds okay, but a lot of times what it can actually manifest as is you basically tiptoe around a subject and do everything you possibly can to not have to address something when something bad happens until it's your last option and you absolutely have to address it, right? And so that's my tendency, is I'll, I'll just see like, what can I do in order that I don't have to have this difficult conversation? Because I really don't wanna have this difficult conversation, right? And then sometimes in this time of, of, of avoidance, you just, it's, it, the, the, whether, whether you're hurt or whatever's going on inside of you, the conflict, it's just stewing inside of you. So by the time that you actually get to a place where you absolutely have to have the conversation because you're gonna explode, you're gonna explode. You're about to explode. And you, come to, and you come to the person and you've already had the conversation in your head. You already know exactly what they're gonna say, right? You've already made all kinds of assumptions about their intentions and about their heart. I'll just remind you that man looks upon the appearance and God looks upon the heart. But nevertheless, we make lots of assumptions about the heart. Me first, Seth, I'm preaching to myself. And so we come and we're already got guns blazing because we're like, I know. Listen, this is, this is how you hurt me and I already know that you are going to deny it and that you are, you are ill-intended and, and so you just come into it and you're ready to fight and you haven't even started the conversation yet. You haven't even given them a chance, right? So that's what happens for conflict-adverse people a lot. And you might be sitting there and you might be going, Seth, that's not like me, you know? Actually, you talk probably more like this. That's not me, Seth. I'm a straight shooter. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, I just tell it like it is, you know? I'm not afraid of no conflict. And then your, your spouse is sitting next to you and going, uh, actually, you just act like a jerk. <laughs> because a lot of times people who are like, no, I'm really good at conflict. They're really good at like starting conflict or entering into conflict and then being a steamroller and, every, and then you just like see what's in the aftermath. Be like, well, I address things directly. <laughs> That's not good either, okay? So wherever you fall on the spectrum, whether you're more conflict adverse or we'll just call it nicely, more conflict ready. God has better for us. There's room for growth. He has better for us. And I wanna talk today and and I wanna look at these scriptures from Proverbs and Matthew 
and Ephesians to see what that better is. How many want better for conflict? How many want better? He has better than, than passive aggressiveness. He has better than bitterness. He has better than angry accusations. He has better than arrogant character assassination. He has better. And so we're going to look at Proverbs first. Now, Solomon, um, we're going to draw four primary statements from this, um, from this passage, each of them talking about how we interact with each other. And so... <clears throat> Um, first, we're going to look at them, what he actually says, and then we're going to talk about it in a little bit more colloquial, a little bit more, like, in, in terms that we would use, a little bit more regular for us. So, the first statement, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, okay? Soft in the original Hebrew is rak, which is, also can be interpreted as gentle or delicate, okay? Well, harsh is esteb, which I think is ironic or not ironic, I don't know, that it sounds a lot like the word stab, and it means painful, hurtful, or hard, okay? This next statement, he says, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. And the next thing he says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Gentle here in the original Hebrew, I love that this word has, if I, if you, sometimes when you only read, I think I talk about this every single time. If you just read the Bible in English, I really encourage you to do deeper word studies into the original languages because there are so many beautiful mysteries that are just sitting there waiting for you to discover. For example, right here, we see gentle and we go, oh, okay, I can picture the connotations of gentle, that's good. But look at what this word means. Look, look how it's used in other places in the scriptures. Gentle means healing, it's this word marpe, and it means healing, soothing, or wholesome. Not just gentle, but healing words. In this word, uh, Perverseness is salef, which is, can also mean crookedness. And the final statement is, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So I think that each one of these, even, at, even just reading, reading them for face value, I think you can get a lot out of them. But if we extrapolate a little bit from them, what's, what, what we'll call exegesis. So I want to talk a little bit for just a moment about the difference between exegesis and eisegesis, because there's a big difference between them. And, and one of them is superior to the other. Okay, so eisegesis is when we have an opinion or we have an idea or we have a belief and we go through scripture trying to reinforce that belief and go, ah, yes, see, I was right. That's eisegesis. That's, that's taking a, a concept that you already have and then trying to basically prove it or support it with scripture, okay? Exegesis works the other way around. Exegesis goes as best we can, understanding that we're humans and we have biases. We go to the word and we simply go, what does the word say? And then we pull meaning from the scripture rather than enforcing meaning on the scripture. Does that, does that make sense? So what we're going to try to do right here is look at these scriptures and do some exegesis. We're going to pull some meaning for interacting with each other, okay? So the first statement is, or the lesson I think that Solomon is teaching is that your tone matters. And that it is going to make a significant impact and, and on the other person. And it's going to draw a response from the other person. As a general rule... A gentle tone will cause tensions to de decrease, and a harsh tone, a, a steb tone, will cause tensions to increase, okay? Have we experienced that in our life, that when you get all, you know, in someone's grill, that it doesn't, that tensions increase, and if you're able to be gentle, then a lot of times they decrease. Now, there is a caveat to this, because some of you are going, no, I always use a gentle term, and it still goes poorly. Let me talk a little bit about the caveat to this. The gentle tone has to be a genuine, 
gentle tone. Because there is another tone that sounds a lot like the gentle tone, but it's a patronizing tone. All the married folks said amen. And all the unmarried folks who've ever interacted with a human being said amen. There is a patronizing tone that you can, here's the thing we do sometimes with the scriptures, is we try to find the loophole. We're going, I'm being gentle, but what's going on in here? There is no loophole in scripture because God looks upon the heart. Now, is it my job to judge what's going on inside your heart? No, but it is your job to reflect and to examine your heart. Because if you go and you're saying, I'm using a gentle tone, but you're being patronizing, you're being sarcastic, and you're just trying to exert control over the, the situation because you see the other person's tension rising, and you're just staying very calm, and you're just pushing their buttons and just going, oh, I have control because you're just getting madder and madder and I'm just, and I just, you know, you know what I mean? And here's the thing. The reason I know so much about this is because I do this. If you ever asked my dad, ooh, he would say, yes, it's something I'm repenting from, but it is definitely a tendency of mine. If I can, if I know that the, the, the other, the tension is rising in the person, sometimes I have the presence of mind, but it's not genuine. It's not genuinely gentle. It's not genuinely healing. And so it's really important if you're going to use this principle, which it is a true principle, if you're being patronizing, don't try to fool yourself. It's not genuine gentleness. Okay? All right. Next one. Acknowledge anything right that the other person is saying. Find common ground when you can. A lot of times we don't think about doing this in the midst of a conflict because we're trying to win, right? Not probably going to find a whole lot of common ground when you're trying to win, which brings me to this next tip. Use words that help bring healing and wholeness to the relationship. Remember that word we talked about for gentle, healing and wholeness to the relationship, not ones that help you get an edge to win. Because as soon as your intention in a conflict is to win, you've already lost. Because the only pure intention in conflict is reconciliation and wholeness. The word in Hebrew is shalom which means wholeness, peace, things as they should be. You know, we hear people say shalom, and we're like, oh, that means like peace, like chill. No, shalom is so much deeper than that. Things as they should be, shalom is what we should be seeking every time that we are in conflict. And if your intent is crooked, even if you're saying things that sound nice, the result is eventually going to be crooked as well. You can only play that game so long, okay? And then the, the final thing is, well, the final piece of advice, I think, uh, from Solomon would be be open to criticism, be open to criticism. You know, my psychologist friend, Matt Rowe, he says, I, I like the way he says, he says, own your mess. Own your mess. Here, we, we, when we do pre-marriage counseling with people, we talk to them, we say, if you feel like you are 1% in the wrong, this isn't just for marriages, but I, this is just something we use as a concept in marriage. If you feel like you are 1% in the wrong, and you know that the other person is 99% in the wrong, own your 1%. And here's why. Not because you should just own everything that's your responsibility, because you should, but because you're more than 1% in the wrong. If you are able to get to just that place of humility, if you can be 1% humble, because <laughs> that's really what it's more like. If you can be 1% humble and you can just come to the other person, whoever it is, and say, I messed up. You might be surprised at how much humility will change the atmosphere in that conflict. Let's practice. You repeat after me, okay? Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? I messed up. I messed up. 
I'm wrong. Come on. You don't have to say that. Come on. Come on. But do you guys feel me? No, it's really easy to say in this context, but when the, when the heat rises, it gets a little bit harder. But I will tell you this. It gets easier and easier and easier. At first, you might be like just sitting there going, no, you're going to apologize first. I'm going to, no, I'm not, I'm not moving. I'm not giving you one inch. And that's, that might be how it feels at first. But if you can make a practice of humbling yourself, a practice of those painful words, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? You're putting yourself at the other person's mercy when you say, will you forgive me? Because it's begging for a response. It's just not, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Me, me? me and my sister, when we were younger, whenever we get in a fight, sorry was never enough for my parents. It was, dad would be like, no, will you forgive me? And it's just like, oh, my stomach is turning. I don't want their forgiveness. <laughs> you know? But then as it became a practice, now it's just, it's just a part of my relationship with my wife. It's a part of my relationship with my parents, with the people around me. Please forgive me. I messed up. You can be 1% humble on your 1%. Okay, now well, let's move on to Matthew chapter 18. So I really like this passage, and one of the reasons I do is because Jesus delivers this instruction in chronological steps. How many, how many type A's do I have out there that are just like, yes, chronological steps? <laughs> I love steps, I love schedules, I love calendars, I love spreadsheets. Is anyone, anyone else like me? Some of you are going, ew, 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 ew. Well, that's me though. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very type A. And, and sometimes in scripture, Jesus uses parables which feel a lot like riddles where it's like, ooh, what are you saying, Jesus? But in this situation, which those are good too and they have their purpose, absolutely. But I really like how direct he is here. He just goes, okay, when a brother sins against you, you do this. And if that doesn't work, you do this. And if that doesn't work, you do this. And I'm just like, yes, this, you're speaking my language, Jesus. Well, not literally. He wasn't speaking English, but... So before we get into the steps, though, I do, want to, I do want to call to attention one little issue with this passage, not an issue with the passage, but an issue with the way that we interpret the passage sometimes. Sometimes we look at Matthew chapter 18, and we look at the instructions, and we go, these instructions are for every time anyone hurts my feelings. That's not what Jesus says. I, I want to call um, to your attention just two parts of that. Anyone hurts my feelings. He actually says, when your brother sins against you. Brother here can also be interpreted as fellow believer, as another believer in Christ, sins against you. Okay, so we're gonna talk about the first one. We're gonna talk about the first one first. Now, what I'm not saying is that if you are in conflict with someone who's not a believer, that you shouldn't use these basic principles because I think the, pr the principles still remain true. But there is a different expectation and a different standard that you go in when you're dealing with conflict with someone who has not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Because my friends, one of the only reasons that we're able to give genuine forgiveness is because we have been transformed by Christ. And so when you are in conflict with someone who doesn't believe, still go to them. Still, do your best to work it out, but there's just certain things you have to remember that there's some certain missing common ground, okay? So let's, that's one thing. The other thing, anytime they hurt my feelings, there's a difference between they hurt my feelings and sinned against me because sometimes our feelings get hurt because of something that's going on inside of us. And someone said something and they didn't mean anything by it. Someone does something and they didn't mean anything by it. And because of pain and insecurity that's already existent, something that we haven't dealt with with God, all of a sudden we're hurt and we're like, it's their fault that I'm hurt. And a lot of times it's not. 
It's not always their fault that you're hurt. A lot of times it's something that you didn't deal with when it needed to be dealt with and it's between you and God. So ask those two two questions. Before you apply these principles, are they a fellow believer? If they're not, I might need to approach this a little bit differently, at least with my expectations in my heart about how this is going to turn out. And did they sin against me or am I just hurt and I need to bring this to the Lord so that he can use this situation to transform me? Two very important questions before you start jumping into all this, okay? Step one, if a fellow believer sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Two words, go alone. Go alone. Go, go as in go to the same location as that person. Don't write a letter. Don't send someone on your behalf. Don't text them, don't email them, don't tweet them, don't send them a direct message on Instagram, don't write a passive-aggressive Facebook post. (laughs) Go and talk to them. You guys are like, well, um, maybe Jesus didn't mean that because they didn't have texting back then. No, they had letters and they had messengers and he said, go. It applies in 2019, go. Okay, go. Number two, alone. Not with your fan club. (laughs) Not in front of a bunch of people who you know are gonna agree with you. Not, Not going not with them and you actually talking about it with them not even present. That's even, I mean, that's, that's, we're taking steps backward at that point. Go alone. And why go alone? Why go and why alone? I'm not 100% sure, but I think I can go out on a limb and say that Jesus knows how we're, how we're built. He knows how we're made. He knows that we get a little bit bolder than we should behind a pen or behind a keyboard. We get a little bolder than we should be. Have you ever noticed how You see people write things online and then you talk to them in person and they wouldn't dare. They wouldn't dare say those things in person. Go. And he also knows that if from the get-go you bring a crowd with you to confront someone, that you're already putting them on the defense like, oh my goodness, now I need to fight all this off and you're gonna end up worse than when you started. Go alone. Now, If you go alone and they don't listen to you, if you're not able to work it out, only then you move to step two. If the person won't listen to you, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the first point at which another person should become involved in the conflict. And it should only be with the intent to go again. So it's not you give them a chance, well, I went to them alone, and then I went and gossiped, and I never addressed it again. No. If step one doesn't work, you then go to one or two people so that you can go with them to deal with the conflict. Now, I do want to give one tip about this part. Be very careful with who you bring. Don't bring your ride or die who agrees with you no matter what. Come on. Don't bring the person who's been, who's been spurring you on and saying, oh yeah, they deserve it. Oh my goodness, you've been so wronged. Don't bring that person. You're not kidding anyone. There's no loopholes. When we bring someone in that situation, the person needs to be wise. They need to be mature. 
They need to be a fellow believer. Can I get an amen? They need to have that common ground of Christ. And they need to be able to step back and make a judicious decision separated from their emotional connection to you. If the person you bring with you can't do those things, then you brought the wrong person. Or two, or one or two people, you know what I mean. Okay, so now granted, if step one, how many of you would like it to be done after step one? Step one and done. It's like, I go to them alone, they hear me out, we're friends. The, word, the Bible says you've gained a brother if they hear you, which can also be interpreted as you have preserved the relationship. Oh, can I just, just step one and done for the rest of my life, Lord? Step one and done. Sometimes that doesn't work out, so you go to step two. And then hopefully at that point it works out. But if you have followed those steps and, need, and, and the person still won't listen, they still won't hear, you still can't work it out, then you would go to step three. And step three says, if he won't listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, when I first read this scripture and I picture it, I'm like, what do you mean, Jesus? <laughs> like, what do you mean by the church? Because the church, he uses the word ecclesia, which we have to put ourselves in the context of where Jesus was. This was before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This was before, this was before the disciples waited and then the church was birthed. This was, Jesus is talking about, like, he's already referring to when he's gone and the Holy Spirit is, is with us. He's already referring to a later thing. And so we have to understand that it's a little bit different context. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, we go, oh, yeah, he said that in 2019. So he understood, you know. Now, granted, Jesus is Jesus, and so he can, of course, see those things coming, but we have to recognize that the organizational church wasn't even a thing at that point. And so, as we've looked at this scripture, you know, all these years later, roughly, you know, 2,000-ish years later, and we see how the church is formed now, the way that we have interpreted it in all practicality, because we really don't find it to be seem to be the right deal to every time someone doesn't listen to the reproof of one person or the two, three out of people that we bring them in front of the whole church and have everyone confront them. And so what we've interpreted this to be and what we believe, we've seen it function and we believe that it's a healthy way of following the scripture is to bring it to a few trusted leaders within the church who have shown themselves to be faithful in what they do, to be wise, to, to be judicious, and to be able to represent the church in that situation. Okay? Now, the next part of this is not popular to talk about. In fact, most of the time when I hear Matthew 18 talked about, this, this next statement gets kind of like, and then we just go on to the next thing because it is uncomfortable. Is it not? I remember read it, and you guys are going to be like, yes, that's uncomfortable. Why did you read it? <clears throat> the final step. Jesus said, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so first of all, a little bit of contextualization for 2019. We're not talking about non-Jews in the IRS. Okay. That's not what we're talking about. In the context, we have to remember that those terms were used culturally by, by the people that he was talking to as people outsiders. These were people who did not follow the way. These were people who were not a part of what he's referring to as the ecclesia. Okay, so don't interpret that straightforward and just go, okay, everyone who's a non-Jew and everyone's the IRS or you'll completely miss the point of this. In fact, it's really interesting the terminology that Jesus chooses to use here because the Gentile and the tax collector is exactly what Jesus was accused of spending time with. 
and being a friend to. And so even though, yes, Jesus is making a delineation here, when someone is in rebellion and, 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 and not in repentance, even when one person, the two or three, and the church has come to reprove them, they are not walking in repentance, we have to remember that the way that Jesus interacted with the outsider, and that was he loved them, he was kind to them, he ate at their house, he, 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 he showed compassion to them. He helped when the, them when they were down. I have friends in my life who I love to spend time with who, would, who don't follow Jesus. Either they, whether they claim it or not, they're just friends I have that don't follow Jesus. And I love them, and I'll be for them when they're going through it. And they're, I mean, they're my people. But, but, but here's, there's, there's, there is a distinction. I'm not going to them for counsel, y'all. If you go to people who, who, who don't follow Jesus for counsel, I know this might not be popular in 2019, but you need to stop. Ooh, yeah, I think people are offended right now. But if you're going to people who don't follow Christ for counsel, you need to stop. Because the Bible says in the Proverbs that, we, that, that fear of God is the beginning of and the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs chapter one, it says, fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And in Proverbs, I believe it's chapter nine, it says, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So we have to, rec I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying because I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying, this, this isn't bigotry in the sense, we're not, we're not treating them worse, we're nothing like that. We accept them, we love them, we hang out with them, but there are certain differences when you're dealing with things when you do not have the common ground of Christ as the center of it all. And if that offends you, you can be offended at me today, but it's what Jesus said. And what I would gently encourage you is if that offends you, for you to let scripture inform your moral compass more than your culture and more than your feelings. I please receive that in the most gentle way possible because I need to do that still too. I'm telling that to myself as well. Okay, we got past like the really hard part. Now we're gonna go to Ephesians chapter four. This is a little bit easier. Whew, the really uncomfortable part is done, you guys. We got past it, we did it. Therefore, it says, uh, we're gonna look at some statements Paul made. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Very simple concept. If we're going to be able to have any chance at dealing with conflict and be able to walk through difficult conversations, honesty has to be at the foundation. We have to be willing to be honest with each other. And, and you might go, well, yeah, duh. Honest when it's uncomfortable. Honest when it makes you look bad. Honest when you don't think the other person can handle it. How many times have we made that excuse? Oh, you know, I would have just gone to them and told them, but I don't, I don't know if they have ears to hear. We make that churchy statement, which it is a statement in scripture, but we have to remember the context in which it's being said in. Did you give them a chance? Oh, they just don't have ears to hear. Did you give them a chance? Did you at least put the words on their ear and see if they would hear? If our words cannot, if they, don't, if they cannot be trusted, we turn difficult conversations into impossible conversations. He then says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The first part of this is a little puzzling. Be angry and do not sin. Wait, but just later in Ephesians chapter four, you're saying to put anger away from you. Here's what I think based on the context that I think Paul might be saying. I think he's, he's recognizing the humanity of the people he's talking to and he's going, anger's gonna come. You're gonna feel anger. I know because I met you. 
and I've met me, and anger's gonna come. But because you have the Holy Spirit in you, and because you have been regenerated, and because you are born again, a new creation in Christ, you get to make a decision about how to respond when anger comes. And you do not have to sin. When anger comes, don't let it, don't, don't let it fester. He says, do not let anger, do not let the sun go down on your anger. We have this rule between me and my wife that we learned in pre-marriage counseling. I'm gonna say a timeline right now, and it's not the golden timeline, so don't remember that part. Just remember the concept, okay? We made an agreement. If we don't come to each other with an issue that we have with each other within 48 hours, then we have to deal with it with the Lord. If it's not big enough to bring within 48 hours, then it's something we just deal with with the Lord. I'm not talking about stuffing it down. I'm not talking about using it as ammunition later in a fight, y'all. I'm talking about truly laying it on the altar and it being gone. Because why would, why would Paul say, don't let the sun go down in your anger? Because he knows what happens when anger festers. When anger festers, it becomes bitterness. And you know what bitterness does to it? It corrodes us from the inside out. And not only does it break one relationship, but it makes us unable to have deep and meaningful relationship when bitterness takes root inside of us. So we're going throughout life and we're 50 years old and we're going, I thought I did everything right. My life looks pretty normal, but I feel dead inside. Did you let bitterness fester? Did you deal with the things when they, when they were supposed to be dealt with? Did you let the sun go down on your anger? He goes, let, he goes on to say, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as, good, as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That builds up. I'm not talking about sunshines and rainbows when I'm talking about building up. I'm not that talking about what makes you feel good, but I'm talking about what transforms you and what has creation power. The Bible says in Proverbs let me look at the passage. I think it's 18. Proverbs 18, 21 says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Isn't that interesting? We're made in the image of God. How did God create the earth? He spoke it. And sometimes we're in a relationship and we go, I don't know why they're, they're so this way. How many times have you called your spouse a name and created that inside of them? You're so dishonorable. Well, if you, call your, if you call your spouse that, if you assign a negative identity to someone, you are asking for them to continue to act that way. You are asking for that to even grow inside of them because you have life and you have death in the power of your tongue. You'd be like, wow, Seth, that sounds a little mystical. That sounds a little spooky. Just read the word. It's what God is saying. This isn't a me thing. There's a huge difference between these two things. Honey, when we were just in that conversation, I really did not feel respected by you in the way that you kept interrupting me. You know what's funny about me saying this to her is this is the exact opposite. This is me, I do this to her. So it's, it's a pretty safe one to use. I didn't feel respected in that time. Versus, you are so disrespectful. One of them spoke to a situation, one of them spoke to an identity. One of them spoke to character, one of them spoke to who they are. When I say something negative in, in a relationship of mine, I make it very, it's very intentional. I, do not make negative identity assignments. You can speak about negative situations, but do not make neg negative identity assignments. Now, negative identity assignments are really great for winning a fight. But you don't win. You just make the other person feel like, feel like crud. And you go, I won the fight. Because you assign negative identities to them. And you know what you did? You just created a mess for yourself. Because when my wife calls me disrespectful, do you know what she's creating inside of me? Disrespect with her tongue. 
life and death in the power of the tongue. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. I thought about skipping the first part of that section and just going and reading the part that talks about all the bad stuff, but I think that the two are connected and that's why I read it. I think Paul is saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Here's what grieves him. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. That's another great reason to stop gossiping, friends. Because it doesn't just hurt people's feelings, it grieves the comforter. It grieves our advocate, it grieves our teacher and our guide, it grieves God. You know, there's a lot of things in this life that I would call shiny sins. I talk about this with people pretty often. If you met with me, you probably heard me talk about shiny sins. You know, there are things out there that are really easy to observe and really easy to judge. Murder, robbery, dealing drugs, uh, name it. Big things that make you go, wow, that's really bad. And granted, those are bad things. Absolutely, not okay. But it's really interesting when you read the Gospels, I don't think that because of this that Jesus at all was saying that the other things were okay, but he seemed to spend a lot of times on a different kind of sin, ones that weren't so shiny, ones that sat below the surface, ones that you can do and still have a good reputation. Maybe you, I could call them white-collar sins or maybe low-key sins. But I think he spent so much time addressing him because they're the most dangerous ones of all. And that what I mean when I say the most dangerous ones of all is because when you do something big enough to go to jail, you, you probably are able to make the logical connection, I think I might have messed up. <laughs> That's a safer place to be than going for 50 years with pride and arrogance and bitterness sitting below the surface. And little do you know you're living in rebellion against God for your entire life. That is a more dangerous place to be. And so with these words that we looked at, malice, clamor, uh, slander, all these things, these are things that can sit below the surface and we don't realize what they're doing to us. And the final thing he says, I love it, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's really hard to argue with kind and tenderhearted. Have you ever noticed that? It's really hard to argue with kind and tenderhearted. I mean, you, you insult, and they're kind and tenderhearted, and you're like, oh, man, you, what do I do next? I feel like a sack of garbage. You know, my dad talks about this, this kind of illustration with two people fighting. He talks about a dynamite stick that's being thrown back and forth. Insult for insult. Raised emotions for raised emotions. You know how to cut the wick? Be kind. Be tenderhearted. Be open, turn toward the person. And he ends with forgiving one another as, Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. And I think Paul is offering another gentle reminder. Don't forget where you came from, church. Don't forget that you have been forgiven much and that you have been charged to forgive as God forgives. And how did God forgive us? Lavishly, abundantly, and without measure. 70 times, seven times, which figuratively actually means, stop counting, Peter. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? No, I don't say seven times. I say 70 times, seven times, and Peter would have known, oh, you mean I should stop counting every time my brother sinned against me? Yes, Peter, that's what I mean. 
lavishly, abundantly, and without measure. That's how we've been forgiven. Will you stand with me?